Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. I've got a special guest in the Speakeasy tonight. He's an accomplished stage, film, and television actor, and he's also narrated hundreds of audiobooks over the past decade. Recently, he took home the 2019 Audi for Best Male Narrator for his performance of Dean Kuntz's Watchers. Eduardo Ballerini, thanks for joining me in the Speakeasy tonight. It is my pleasure. I've got a drink in hand, and I'm ready for it. <laughs> I'm glad you do. I, I do as well. I, uh, I know that you are incredibly busy and uh, prolific on the audiobook front, as well as others, I'm sure. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come in tonight. No, it's great. Not, uh, this, we're recording this at night. I know people listen to this at all hours of the day, but 9 p.m. is sort of the only time during the day when I get a little, a little quiet time. I get to pour myself a drink, uh, and it's always a pleasure to talk audiobooks and acting. Well, I am I am so glad that uh, 9 o'clock worked out for you because it works out well here for me as well. I'm in Tucson, and now at this point, we're on West Coast time. So perfect for happy hour for me, and if your happy hour is later, I'm glad it worked out that way. So uh, so what are you drinking tonight? I am having a, a pint of cider, uh, which is not something that I uh, normally have, but my wife brought some home the other day, and uh, I tried it, and I thought, man, this is delicious. How, how have I not known about this my whole life? Um, I'm also trying to, uh, drink local. Uh, so this is a New York, uh, I'm in New York. So this is a New York made, uh, hard cider. Oh, that's great. Which um, one is it? Uh, it's called nine point, I believe. Nine point. Uh, I don't know that one. Yeah. It's a local cider. And as I say, I'm trying to, you know, do more sort of local purchasing of food and beverage and materials. Um, and so, you know, here's a local cider and it's delicious. So I, I thought I'd have another and join you for a chat. That's great. Is it uh, apple or pear or something else? It's an apple. Um, and it actually packs quite a punch. I had one last night and I was sort of surprised because <laughs> you, you sort of feel like you're sipping on some juice and then sort of, you know, yeah, it hits have, you as you get after. down to the bottom of the pint of it, you're like, Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's, that's the real stuff. Well, I love a good cider. I'll look for that. I don't know if they, uh, if they go outside the local area, I'm the same way I do. Um, I, I buy local whenever possible. We've got a few distilleries here in, uh, in Tucson and I try to try to get, try to buy from them as often as possible possible. One, I don't like quite so much, so don't really buy too much there, but uh, there is one that makes a really good whiskey that's not aged super long, but it's got uh, great flavor. So I've always got some of that on hand. So I, I think is that, drinking, what is that what you're having tonight? It's not actually tonight. I am having my latest favorite gin cocktail. It's okay. called the Jasmine. It was invented in the nineties. I can't remember the bartender's name, but he had a friend whose last name was Jasmine without an E which mm -hmm. he forgot when he named the drink, and then he got it in print with an E, so it's actually spelled the normal <laughs> way for Jasmine. But right. uh, but what happened was I've, I tried a Negroni a couple of years sure. ago, and I hated it. It was way too bitter for me, and I tried it because a friend of mine liked it, and I thought, oh, sure, I'll have one. And then I – so I've had this bottle of Campari for like two years – had mm -hmm. nothing to do with it because it was just so bitter to me. So I, I started thinking recently, you know, I got to figure out a way to get rid of this, maybe in a way that I would like. And so uh, so I looked it up, looked for some recipes, and I found this one. And it only uses a, a really small amount of Campari, 
but it's just enough to add a little bitterness. It's uh, gin, lemon juice, and then a little bit of Cointreau and a little bit of Campari. And so with the lemon juice and the Cointreau, it's got this citrus flavor. And with the Campari, it makes it a little bitter. So it actually tastes like grapefruit, even though there's nice. no grapefruit in it. Right. So uh, so that's my, my new favorite gin cocktail. And uh, that's what I'm having tonight. Unfortunately, nothing there uh, sourced locally. But whenever I can, I do. So right. anyway, uh, thanks so much for coming in, Eduardo. Uh, cheers. My pleasure. Cheers to you. All right. So, uh, so you said that you're in New York at this point. Um, where, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in New York. I grew up in the city. Uh, and I also spent uh, my summers in Italy. Uh, oh. my, father's, my father's Italian. My mother's American. So I grew up kind of back and forth. Um, school year in New York, summers in Italy. I did that until I was about oh, 16 or so. Uh, so I speak Italian fluently. I'm a dual citizen and I still try to get back there once or twice a year. Um, so that was, uh, yeah. So I'm an East coast guy with a with a little European twist to it. That's, that's great. Spending that much time in Italy and, uh, the dual citizenship and everything. Do you still have family there that you, that you go to visit? Uh, no, all the family has passed away, unfortunately, but, um, my father is there, uh, half the year he's, uh, between Milan and New York. And so now I try to get over, uh, as I say, a couple times a year, um, we're going to go this summer again. And, um, I grew up bilingual and language has always been just, uh, in, in just a basic part of my life. This idea that, you know, language and words matter. And I remember even as a little kid, like being interested in different phrasings and turns of phrase and in Italian and English. And I think my love of language started very early. Um, I remember being fascinated by how humor worked in the different languages, like something would be funny in English and it wouldn't be funny in Italian. Yeah, it doesn't translate. Um, it doesn't <laughs> translate, right? And I'd think, well, why doesn't that work? And I remember I tried to tell, you know, sort of Italian jokes to Americans and American jokes to Italians. And, and there was a big cultural gap and a linguistic gap. Um, and so I've always paid close attention to language. And so it's not surprising to me that I have a, a big part of my life now is, you know, with audiobooks and and the spoken and written word. Yeah, and I'm sure that that served you well in other forms of acting as well. I mean, being that interested in language, I'm sure translated to um, more maybe more nuanced stage and screen performances. Yeah, the 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 very brief version of my journey was that when I was in college, I wanted to be a writer, um, and I still have an enormous admiration for writers, uh, and I have a, a profound respect for the written word. Um, and then somehow when I got out of college, sort of looking to sort of stretch myself a little, try different things, and I kind of stumbled into acting. And I stumbled into acting via plays, um, as a lot of us did, but the more, the very literary kind of plays, like Eugene O'Neill, especially. Yeah, I love who, Eugene O'Neill. Yeah, I mean, he's brilliant. And I've always said that you can really read an O'Neill play like you're reading a book. You know, mm -hmm. It's really very dense. And even his descriptions of rooms and his stage directions are so thick that you feel like you're, you're reading a novel. Yeah, he was and epic so that was, with those stage directions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he would literally talk about like, you know, a character's hands in minute detail and you're thinking, well, you know they're going to cast this, and the, the the woman's hands might not match your description. <laughs> but, and so that that was kind of my entree into acting, um, and so it came out of literature, um, and 
as I say, you know, now that in the last year or two, the majority of my work has been in audiobooks. Um, I've had a 20 odd year career and it's still going in film and TV um, and some stage. But now the, the the bulk of the work has been in audiobooks, which I enjoy immensely. Um, and it seems like it's sort of coming full circle in a way to where I started when I was studying and when I was a kid. Um, and now that I'm older and and so it's like all those years of work somehow are kind of paying off in a way that I hadn't imagined when I first started. Yeah, that's great. So where was it that you went to school? I went to Wesleyan University uh, in Connecticut. And you didn't um, study acting there? No, I did not. I was a literature uh, major. I graduated with honors in English. And then when I graduated, I got a scholarship to go to Rome uh, to study uh, Latin, believe it or not. Um, and so I was deep into languages. I'd studied Greek. Um, and so I was studying, uh, doing a summer course of Latin in Rome. And I kind of got bored, uh, to be <laughs> honest. Well, you know, I was 22 years old. Everybody, we'd all graduated and scattered. And all of a sudden, I was in Italy by myself. Uh, studying, and I just didn't feel right. And I, I literally saw an ad uh, in a paper for an American acting company, like a theater company of expats. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. You know, like, I'll check that out, something to do, meet some people. And I kind of liked it. And I, I sort of fell in with this crowd for a little bit. And then I moved back to New York and started, as we all did back then, I started taking classes at HB Studios, uh, then I started studying at uh, Lee Strasberg, and I was hanging around the actor's studio. Um, and then I just started working um, in some TV and film roles, a little bit of theater, though not much. Um, and then it just sort of rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And, you know, 20 odd years later, here I am. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I, I love hearing stories like that about um, whether it's acting theater or whatever it is, how one you know, newspaper ad, uh, yeah. one, one commercial, one, whatever it is, all of a sudden you end up, you know, whoever it is ends up doing something completely different than anything they ever imagined they would end up doing. And they end up loving it. Yeah. I mean, I thought I, I always thought I'd be a professor and possibly a novelist. Uh, you know, I figured that was my path. Um, and then it, yeah, it took this sort of left turn and I'm very glad it did. Uh, you know, there's so many aspects of my life that I enjoy um, but it was a bit unexpected. And I think people that knew me back then, some of whom I'm still in contact with, they're still sort of marveling. They're like, how did you become an actor? Like, <laughs> you were such on such a path to be a writer and a professor and a linguist. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, it just, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah you never and know audio books actually, happen. audiobooks was kind of in a, in a strange way, a sort of similar accident in that I was doing a lot of film and TV and, uh, an agent, a voice agent, uh, contacted me to see if I'd like to work with him for like commercial voiceover and that kind of stuff. And I said, sure, you know, I'd not done much of it. And I sort of got started with that and did a few spots here and there. Uh, how, nothing how long major. ago was this? We're talking 10, 12 years ago, I guess. Okay. Um, you know, nothing major, um, some commercials, you know, VO. Uh, and then another woman, uh, who was a producer of uh, campaigns uh, who had tried to get me onto a, a couple of commercial campaigns that I didn't get them. She then sort of turned and said, I want to start doing some long form audio. Uh, would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I was willing to try. And she just said, all right, I want to set up and start producing some audio books. And I was like, 
okay, what's that? You know, I didn't really <laughs> know much about it. You know, the industry, as, as you know, but, you know, some listeners may not, in the last five to ten years has exploded. Oh, yeah. Um, and while audiobooks and books on tape have certainly existed for decades, it's, it's nothing like what we're seeing now. I mean, the industry now is so much bigger than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so this was, you know, ten years ago, roughly, when it wasn't as big as it is now. Uh, Audible didn't exist, you know, uh, the technology to have, you know, 500 books in your pocket didn't exist. So things were very different. So I said, sure, let's, let's try it. And she said, you know, pick a title basically. And I was, I was oh, like, wow. okay. Give, give you the selection. Yeah. And she just said, as long as it's public domain, you know, it's like, well, we'll produce it. And I was like, okay. So we found a translation of Machiavelli's The Prince that was in public domain. Oh, wow. And that was the first, that was the first book I did. And I kind of enjoyed it, you know, I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I'm getting paid to read a really fascinating book. Like, this is great. Yeah. And then I, I was in LA at the time and I moved back to New York. And again, some sort of VO contacts were moving their way into more audiobook production because that's where the industry was going and the money was going. And one had said to me, would you like to audition for a book? And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I've done a book. Yeah, I know what this is. And it worked out. And then it just, again, it just sort of rolled. And it is this sort of, for me, this perfect nexus of acting and literature um, together. And so it feels like a place that I was meant to be for a long time. Yeah, no, no kidding. Um, so I know a little bit of your uh, earlier work in uh, in TV. Uh, yeah. Most of my listeners know that I'm a I'm a Sopranos fanatic, and mm. when I when I found out that you were doing audiobooks, I thought, wait a minute, I know that face, and then I, right. I I had to look up and see you know character and name and everything. Um, I've I think I've watched that whole series twenty or thirty or fifty times or whatever it is now. <laughs> it, it's just something that I turn on to have in the background because it's like I can yeah. practically recite it, right? So I love that, and uh, by coincidence, I actually just saw last night, and it really is a coincidence. It's not because I knew we were going to be speaking. I actually saw the NYPD Blue episode that you were on. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, about That's six funny. months ago, we got Prime. And when I found out that NYPD Blue, which I think is like the best cop show ever made, was right. on Prime for free, I started watching it. And it just so happens that I am just now in the middle of season nine. And so when I found That's out funny. that you had been on that show, I'm like, oh, that maybe that was an episode that I saw. And then I recognize him because there are so many actors from The Sopranos that have showed up on right. NY, that, that were on NYPD Blue previously. Right. I thought, ah, oh, maybe it's one that I've already seen. And I recognized him. And then I saw that it was in this season. I thought, you got to be kidding me That's so funny. anyway it was great you were totally crucified in that episode yeah so. quite literally. <laughs> uh, yeah i had my hands nailed to a table I believe. Yeah, yeah yeah no i've done a lot of episodic uh stuff and the sopranos obviously i had a nice recurring role yeah um yeah. it got me a lot of attention uh it was a small part in the grand scheme of the series mm-hmm. um but it's one that stuck out and uh and people really really remembered it and you know to this day i still get stopped all the time um, people asking me about the Sopranos in that role, which was, I think only appeared in like four or five episodes. Yeah. I think it was, um, I think it was four and, but you're yeah. right. It's very memorable. It's like you played like this, this key component to a couple of different storylines very, very briefly, but it, but it was um, for me anyway, it was very memorable. I think there was something about that character that it was so different from the other characters in the show um, you know, he was this, uh, he was another Italian American character, but he was this junkie 
and this this sort of lost kid who sort of had stumbled into this world and didn't really know what he was doing, mm-hmm. which kind of contrasted with the kind of the machismo and the bravado that most of those characters had. Yeah. You know, he was very soft and vulnerable and kind of tender. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it kind of stuck out with people. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah. you know, it's, it, it was, it was a blast being on that show. I remember being on set um, and it was, I, it was, it was huge. I mean, it really was huge. They, I mean, they literally had the streets roped off mm-hmm. so that we could, walk from the trailers to the set i mean there were people just lining the streets because they knew the sopranos was filming there yeah and it was and nuts it, it's still huge i i still haven't seen the uh, 20 year anniversary special yet uh that they right. did on hbo but it's still huge um there are still yeah. i think there are still a lot of us who think it's probably one one of if not the i, I think it's the best tv series that i've ever seen uh, yeah. And there are a lot of good ones out there, you know, but it, but it just, uh, for some reason, it resonated with me. So anyway, so I, I was a little familiar with a couple of things that you did, but then I checked your credits and, and you did a lot of different acting type things um, back yeah. in the day. So it's really great that, that you had this, you know, literary background and that could kind of fold in with the acting. And, and you're right. It, it sounds like a, a perfect fit in the, uh, in the audiobook world. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because... You know, to be perfectly candid, a lot of the acting that I've done does not allow me to show that side of my life. Um, you know, even something as, as brilliant as The Sopranos, you know, it's not going to show off your linguistic skills. You know, right. it's not going to show off the fact that, you know, uh, you've read a lot of books and you're, you know, can can move in that world. Um, and a lot of shows are like that. You know, TV is different from literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's there's a reason um, and so to have both worlds now, um, I do more audiobooks than, than screen acting these days. Um, although that could change at any minute. Sure, um, yeah. it's, uh, it's nice for me to, to be able to, to exercise that muscle, which for a long time I was not using, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so audiobooks, um, it gives you an, an actor, I have to say, like, just such an incredible opportunity to do things that you can't do on stage or on screen. Um, you know, I, I, when you have to play all these characters at once Mm -hmm. and you have to create this world on your own and you are a one person show, there's really nothing quite like it. And I feel like I've been stretched as an actor far more doing books than, than in anything else I've ever done. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I I could totally see that. Uh, and, and and I also have, you get to yeah, sorry to interrupt. You, no, you get to fine. you you play characters that you would never play on screen. Right. You know right. that you'd never I mean, be I, able to. No, nobody I mean, would I've, ever cast I've, you. Yeah. I mean, I have quite literally had to voice Richard Burton and Truman Capote and uh, the Pope, and you know, it's like <laughs> I'm never going to be cast as these people on screen. Yeah. But in audio, it's like you know, in, and you have to pull it off. So. And and one of the things that I like about the challenge of audiobooks is that you have to pull it off with nobody being able to see your expression. And that's what I try to try to tell like um, authors who want to do their own work is um, nobody nobody is seeing you. Nobody right. you can when you're on stage or especially on camera, um, you know, little raise of your eyebrow means can right. mean a big deal in a scene. And, uh, and when you're reading, nobody sees that. So you've got to be able to convey everything that you have to convey without anybody being able to see anything. I think there's something remarkable about the medium and how stripped down it is. Um, you know, it's to your point that you, 
the visual is removed. Mm -hmm. And when you think about film, television, stage, how much of it is visual, right? You have, you have sets and you have camera moves. And then on top of that, you have editing and all these sort of tricks, your eye is being tricked and manipulated in so many ways. And so messages are coming to you Mm -hmm. and an impression is made when you're talking about audio, it's really stripped down. And there's something I have found with listeners as they've written me over the years about the, the intimacy of this form, which I had not expected that beyond just the fact that, you know, people are listening to you in their car or lying in bed or in the gym or wherever that you're with them in their lives. There's something about this one-on-one relationship Mm -hmm. that they know that it's one person telling them one person, a story, and there's nothing in between. It's not like when you go to a theater and you're sitting in a a room of a hundred or 500 or 2000 and there are 15 or 20 actors on stage or you're watching a movie and you know that a hundred people worked on this thing. There's something just very intimate about it. And I have found that listeners' reactions are much more correspondingly intimate um, to to what they're getting out of it. People have written me such extraordinarily intimate things about um, their lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, when talking about listening to my books, um, that I, I'm really kind of moved and surprised by it. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, um, I'm, I'm sure it's great to, to get that kind of correspondence. Um, somebody asked me just recently, actually here in the speakeasy, what did I think made a good audiobook? And that was actually what I pulled out was if the listener can feel like you are telling them a story, not everybody else, But if they can feel like you are telling them alone right. a story, right. that's what makes a good audiobook. Yeah, I, I have two. I, I agree completely, and I have sort of two other sort of pet theories about this, which I'll throw out. And one is that you know audiobooks have exploded in the last five or ten years, and it seems to be almost like a reaction to the confusing and manic times that we live in. <laughs> Could that, be. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? That yeah. like there's so much information coming at us all the time and everything is so so flashy and fast and and then there's a story simply mm-hmm. told from yeah. one person to another. Just tell me and there's a story. Something, yeah. yeah, there's something very basic and very primal about it. Mm-hmm. And the other part of this theory is that it it almost takes us back to childhood you know, when we were read to, mm-hmm. um, and there's something very comforting and soothing and, and intimate about it. Um, and so I've been really struck by how powerful this medium is. I, I didn't, I didn't know this sort of five or 10 years ago, as I started to get, get into it more and more, I hadn't really understood what it was. Yeah. No, I, I agree with, with all of that. Um, especially the, the tribal part, when you think about it, you know, back before the written word, uh, that's how, that's how people got their information. It was storytelling. Yeah. So. yeah. And I, I think it's something just sort of innate that we, we appreciate. Yeah. So do you have a, a specialty or a niche, uh, in the audiobooks that you do, or are you no, equally I, happy I kinda, narrating anything? Yeah. I kind of bounce all over. Um, I do, uh, some thrillers. Um, I've done a lot of James Patterson titles, uh, and I've, I've gotten to meet, uh, James Patterson a couple of times. We oh, did a cool. couple of events. Yeah, we did a couple of events together. That was nice. Um, and then I've done very sort of literary, kind of high-minded um, books, uh, things that would be up for like, you know, the Booker Prize or, you know, 
uh, book of the year kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some classics as well, uh, Dante and Kafka and Camus. Mm. Uh, and then a lot of spiritual titles, uh, mostly on the Buddhist side, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've really, I've really bounced around uh, with all different with all different genres, and I feel equally at home in them. Well, um, I, I didn't know, and I wouldn't have guessed that you would have done a lot of nonfiction, but I was listening to an interview probably two or three or four months ago with um, David Hu, I think his last name is pronounced Hu, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, they were talking to him about the the book that he wrote, How to Walk on Water and Climb Up Walls, and all yeah. about insect life. And as I was listening to this interview, I thought, oh, that sounds fascinating. i got to look this up and see if there's an audiobook and see who published yeah. it. And I looked it up, and I found out, yep, there's an audiobook, and you narrated it. And when I was just looking yeah. recently, I saw that you've actually done quite a bit of nonfiction. Yeah, I've done a, a lot of nonfiction. That was a great book. Um, that was really fascinating. Some, yeah, some fascinating science really told in a very simple way so that the layman can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've done a, a few. Uh, I did a couple of books about Venice, one about Istanbul. Um, one a beautiful book uh, called The Swerve about the Renaissance and how the Renaissance happened, basically. Um, and so I, I enjoy those a lot because I feel like I'm getting an education while I'm doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, I feel very comfortable in, in that as well. Uh, I've done a number of essays, uh, uh, Paul Thoreau essays. Uh, I also narrate a number of, um, articles for publications like the New Yorker and Vanity Fair and the Atlantic. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a subgenre that I enjoy. Um, so you don't have, you, you don't have to do characters necessarily. You know? Right. And, and right. there are a lot of different ways of looking at that. Some people think that nonfiction is substantially more difficult than fiction because you can't rely on those characters and other right. people find that, or think that for whatever reason it's, uh, it's easier for them. I'm, I'm kind of right in the middle. I, I like doing both fiction and yeah. nonfiction. Uh, it's, it's still all about storytelling and if you end up having something that's fairly dry, it's up to you to make sure that it's not so dry for the listener. <laughs> right. It's still, it's the same principle. You're exactly right. You still yeah. have to connect with your listener. Yeah. You know, you still have to make sense of it to them. You really have to paint the picture for them. There's a bit of a, I, I kind of came up with a, a metaphor that I don't know if it's entirely accurate, but I'll see what you think is that a, an audio version of something is like, is sort of like having a, a guide walk you through a city as opposed to walking through a city by yourself. Oh, that's great. In that, yeah. yeah. In that they, they know sort of where to turn and what's coming and they can point things out to you that you might've missed. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that, you know, fully understanding that some people don't want a guide when they're walking <laughs> through a city, you know, they just right. want to wander and get lost on their own and that's fine. Right. Um, but you are sort of with somebody who's going to walk you through it. You know? Yeah. No, that's great. I like that. Um, so what's your recording situation? Do you record only in studios? Do you record at home? Is it half and half? Do you, um, what do you Yeah, I, I, I bounce around a little bit. I do have a home studio now that I'm in a house. Uh, I was in New York city a year and a half ago in an apartment and there was no room for a studio. But now that I've moved out of the city and have a house, I have a studio at home. Uh, and so I do some of my work here. Uh, but then I still go into the city, uh, into the studios, into the publishers, uh, for certain titles. There are also some other studios nearby, um, in, in towns near me where I go work. I like to mix it up. Um, I 
I am sort of deadly afraid of just only working in my own basement in my own <laughs> studio. Um, I, I do think that's a, I don't know if that's what you do and pardon me. Um, no, uh, it's, uh, but, but that's, I think that what you're getting at is a fairly common concern is that if, yeah, if, if I, you do, I feel like I'd go crazy. Yeah. If you, know. you do voiceover work and specifically long form narration, whether it's right. e-learning or audiobooks or whatever, and, right. and you're not being directed and you're just right. working in the booth all day, um, it, you can go a little stir crazy. Yeah, you can go a little nuts. So yeah. I, uh, I try to mix it up. Um, I try to, my, my general rule for now is to do shorter projects at home, uh, and anything longer, um, because I do enjoy working with people, mm -hmm. um, whether that's just an engineer or a, a you know, a director. So, um, so does that vary? I was actually going to ask you about that. So when you go in and record in a studio, uh, it yeah. sounds like, it sounds like you don't always have a director. No, it varies from project to project. Okay. Um, and I can't speak to the publishing side of it, but I can only assume it has to do with the budget of the title. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's just like any other project in the world. It has a budget. Um, and so they, they are guessing whether it's going to be a big seller for them or not. Mm -hmm. And you know, if they think it's going to be a big seller, they're going to put a little more into it. Right. That just makes sense. Um, and so sometimes there's a director working with you and sometimes, um, it's an engineer and, you know, I've worked with a lot of these engineers over and over because there's a handful of studios that I go to mm -hmm. and they end up directing to be perfectly candid. You know, they, they will pull me back if they think I've missed something. Um, and they'll make sure that, you know, we're, we're keeping our, our, our things in order. Um, sure. And they have enough experience yeah, working absolutely. on enough audiobooks yeah. to be able to yeah. do that without yeah. you think, without you thinking, well, you're right. just the engineer. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're far more than just people pushing buttons. Right. Um, and so, yeah, but I do, in answer to your original question, I try to mix it up. I like to get to different places, see different faces, work with different people. I think it keeps me fresh. Um, yeah, just to go into the different studios also gives me a chance to say hi to different producers and, uh, you know, just to sort of keep keep moving in the industry as opposed to just working at home. Sure. Yeah, no, totally understand. Um, I know, you know, a lot of the people that I've, um, been working with or alongside over the past few years, uh, you know, as you get up to the point where you're working in the studios, one of the things that they're always saying is I worked for the first time with a director in a studio for Cantor or Blackstone or mm -hmm. whoever it is. And, oh my God, that was so great being able to do that. Um, right. and I know that it's also nice to be able to have the freedom to say, well, you know, here's the time frame that you've given me for this project and I can work that in and record it at home. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot, of, a lot of positives on both sides. Absolutely. I've, I've done some projects, smaller projects at home where I've done them at night. You mm -hmm. know, you can't do that in the studios. Um, and so, yeah, I like to, to keep that balance and maintain that flexibility. So it, it's really on a project by project basis. Yeah. So what about your, uh, your home situation? So you've got a booth there and you record sometimes, uh, are there other people in the home? Do you have to worry about noise from them or do they have to worry about not disturbing you? Uh, yeah, well, I do have a family, um, with two little kids. Wow. Uh, and so I, uh, I often try to do my work at, at night after they're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it certainly makes it easier. Um, no doubt. but by and large, by and large, no, I'm very fortunate that, uh, the booth that I've set up, uh, is, it, I, I moved into this house and over in one of the corners of the basement was an old wine cellar. Oh, um, yeah. And so it had these really, really thick, thick brick walls. Oh, uh, nice. So you've like, got kind of like built in already. 
Oh yeah, I mean yeah. we're talking like two foot thick stone. Nice. Oh my yeah. god, a lot of us would kill for that. <laughs> I know, and so it was kind of just sitting there, like waiting to happen. And so I had somebody come in, and they framed it out, and they put in the insulation, and you know all the in the ventilation and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's really, really quite quiet in there. Uh, and awesome. as I say, it's over in a corner of the house where people aren't really above it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, people can kind of come and go and it, it doesn't really bother me. Um, but I do, I, I don't know why I just, I, I like to work at night anyway when it's just perfectly quiet. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds great. So you work in a lot of different genres and, and you like them all. Is there anything that you won't narrate or that something has come along that, that you've been offered and you've said, well, you know, I'm not really comfortable with that or anything like yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, some lines I won't cross. Um, I have not done anything. Uh, I've, not, I've never done anything pornographic. I've never done any pornography or even sort of hardcore romance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not interested in the genre. Um, and I, I certainly wouldn't do anything, uh, that was, you know, sort of like hate speech. Mm. Um, you know, if somebody wanted me to read their manifesto or something and I didn't agree with it, I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, other than that, I, uh, you know, I know some narrators will use a a pseudonym on certain titles if Mm -hmm. they don't, if they don't think it's really, you know, their best stuff. I, I've never done that even when I thought the book wasn't great. Um, and there's certainly been a number of books where I've thought, wow, these are really not great books. Um, but I always felt like I should, I should put my name to it. Um, I should sort of say, yes, I did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't want to have two names, you know, one is my like, you know, erotica name and one is my like, you know, high minded literature name. Yeah. Um, I've always said like, if I'm going to accept a job, I'm going to put my name on it and I'm going to say I did this. Now there've been. I have turned things down, not because, as I say, they cross these lines that I won't cross. Uh, but on one occasion, I remember it was actually very early in my career. Audible asked me if I would do a series, and it was this sci-fi series. And I read the first 20 pages of it or so, and I, I, I called them and I said, I don't think I can do a good job with this. Mm. Um, yeah, I just I was very candid. And as I look back on it now, it's kind of a bold thing to say, considering I probably had like five titles to my credit, you know? Yeah. But um, no, I, and I, I, was saying, I love no. hearing that. I love hearing that. Cause that, that comes and up I, and I hear other people say the same thing, that it's one of the best things that you can do. It is was to admit. because they came back and they, they offered me a better book. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> that, that's a um, nice happy ending to that story. Yeah. I mean, I really just genuinely thought like, I don't really like this genre and I don't think I'm going to be very good in it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I said, no. And they were kind of like, what do you mean? It's like a four book series, you know, it's cash in hand, you know? And I was like, well, I just don't think I can do it. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I love hearing that. Uh, it, it is advice that I've heard from several people where it's like, if you don't think you can do a good job, the worst thing you can do is yeah. to actually do it and get it out there and find out that you were right. Yeah. So if you feel that way, something else will come along. Yeah. And on that note, you know, even the books that I've I've taken, which aren't, you know, exactly my cup of tea. I do try to do the best job I can. Sure, you know? yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't want to, you know, uh, feel like, you know, okay, I'm just going to phone this in. Like, right. um, I do, you know, some obviously come out better than others. That's just the nature of art. Um, but I always try to do my best work with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then other times uh, scheduling uh, will get in the way. Mm. Uh, and somebody says, like, I need this book, you know, in the next five days. And 
you say, well, I can't. Right. Um, so you've had, I've had to turn things down that way. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I don't know if it's just the, the basic flow of things, but I, I work very steadily. Um, and it just always seems that I'm sort of booked like, you know, four to six weeks in advance and not much beyond that. And then as, as a couple of weeks go by, the next sort of four to six weeks will kind of fill in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's never like I'm being overwhelmed with, with titles. Right. Um, and usually not too long of a kind of drought between them. Yeah. So it's been a nice steady flow. No, that's great. And it- I mean, you've been doing this for a decade now, and I'm sure that you have done, although the, the stuff that I'm more familiar with in terms of your TV work was prior to that, I know that you've done projects in film and, and TV since then. Oh, has, sure. has that ever been a scheduling problem? Well, yeah, there was one. I mean, as I was really getting going in audiobooks, I had actually won the uh, Best Male Narrator Award in 2013. Um, so, uh, for a book called beautiful ruins, which is an absolutely brilliant book by Jess Walter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I was still fairly new in the business. I'd only been doing it, I don't know, three, four years. And it was kind of surprising, um, that it happened. And so I started to get more offers. And then shortly after that, I got a TV series in new Orleans. Um, and I was gone for months uh, and I couldn't really record anything in between. Uh, and so that kind of kind of got in the way of, of recording. But that was, you know, talk about a high-class problem. Yeah, really. Um, First you know, world problem. Doing it, yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> doing a TV show for HBO in New Orleans, so I can't record audiobooks. Yeah. Um, so, um, but so that happened. And then the other film projects I've done in the last few years have all been uh, smaller. They've only been like a few weeks uh, on and off. Uh, and they've, I believe, all been local. I don't think I've had to travel for filming since uh, New Orleans. Um, and so I've managed to work schedules around them. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Hasn't been an ongoing problem. No, no. I mean, I would love it if it was a problem again, if somebody offers me another TV series that I have to say, oh, I'm going to have to put my audiobook career on hold for a few months while I go shoot a series. Right, right. You know? So have you ever done any uh, coaching? I mean, since you've been doing this for so long, since you've been an actor for much longer and since you've been doing audiobooks for a decade and you've got uh, well over a couple hundred audiobooks yeah. to your name, um, have you ever done any narration coaching or just acting coaching in general? I have not. Uh, the closest I've come to it was uh, years ago in Los Angeles, I taught a uh, voiceover class Um through a company that they had, they very much had a, a, a curriculum and a syllabus. And so as the, the teacher, um, it was a wonderful class, but as the teacher, you were very much just following their curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a, a group of like eight or 10 students. And that was, I, I, maybe it was like a six week thing. Um, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I've never really done any coaching. I've done some, uh, a couple of young actors that I, I met, uh, would came over a couple of times because they wanted to get into audiobooks and they wanted to sort of talk to me and I talked to them and you know they read me some stuff and I gave them a couple of pointers but that was all informal um, I've never gotten into it I um I've talked to students a few times uh, at NYU and at UNC I've been invited to talk to people um, but I've never done uh, there I know there are a lot of people out there coaching now I'm not sure what I would say to be honest I feel like a lot of what I do, um, is instinctual. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I'm not sure, and I don't mean to 
you know, sound like, oh, I'm so wonderful, but I'm not sure how I do what I do exactly. No, I, 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 I understand. Really, yeah, it's it's a very different skill set, and a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people don't quite see it that way. But the way that I see it is, uh, you can be a great teacher even if you have trouble doing the work. You can be great at the work even if you don't know how to impart that knowledge to somebody, or you can be somebody who does both. But right. but but it doesn't just because you're good at the work doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be good at importing it, which is of course not to say that you would or wouldn't be. I have no idea, but um, right, yeah. but it is a very I've different never, skill set. Yeah, I've never I've never been asked uh, to teach outside of you know like a sort of guest lecture kind of thing or you know interview kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and I've never pursued it. And as I say, I'm not quite sure how I would even begin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what I would say to people other than like, well, you have to prep the book and then you go in the booth and you read it. Like, <laughs> like that's kind of my, my advice. So my class would be over in about 30 seconds. Um, and, and I, you know, I've, I've actually been in a couple of, uh, workshops at, um, the audiobook uh, at APAC, mm-hmm. um, the audiobook audio producers association conference. Um, and I've, I watched a couple of workshops where somebody would get up and they would sort of be coached and, I, I, I always watch them and it's like, well, what are they going to tell them exactly? You know, somebody's going to read them uh, three pages or something, then they're going to offer critique. And how is it going to really, and I, I feel the same way about acting coaches. It's like, I kind of feel like if you're a great teacher, you can get an actor or a narrator to, to be better than when they first walked in the room. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, you know, the person is probably going to just do the same thing over again, right? You have to know how to push those buttons. And I'm not sure I do. I'm not sure I know how to to get somebody to try something different. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying, and I actually did a, a brief workshop um, not too long ago, a few weeks ago. It was more commercial voiceover, and mm-hmm. um, and I liked what the what the guy who was running it um, was saying about the fact that a lot of times what will happen is he'll he'll do a workshop, or he knows people who have been in workshops where um, you you tell somebody something. And then they do it right then, and they said, and he said, and then the next day they go right back to doing what they were doing before, and so it's a matter right. of somehow getting them not just to do something different right now, but mm-hmm. getting them to understand what it is that was the problem with what they did the first time that would require them to do something different, and then practice makes perfect or permanent anyway. Right. Do it over and over and over again, so that right. then you're you're actually taking that new skill and incorporating it regularly, and and that that can be difficult. Yeah, I once watched. Uh, I agree. I once watched um, the great acting uh, coach Milton Katselis, who had the Beverly Hills Playhouse, um, and I he he was he was brilliant, and I watched him take this scene. I think it was a scene from Hamlet, and. This guy was playing Hamlet, uh, and he was okay the first time through. And then Milton just sort of coached him through the whole thing. And then he did it again. And it was so vastly different. And I remember being blown away by the power of this this teacher and this coach who was able to transform a performance. He was a director, too. He was a Broadway mm-hmm. director. And, you know. um, and I had the same question. I was like, is this guy going to take this away with him or is he going to leave it on the stage? Like, is this, is this the best, you know, monologue soliloquy he's ever done with Hamlet or is he going to be able to do it again tomorrow? I don't know. I never saw it again, but I was amazed at what uh, Milton Katselis was able to do in like 10 minutes to transform this performance. 
That's that's a great story. I, I like hearing stories about that where somebody can direct and have that immediate of an impact. Yeah. Um, but when I when I heard this recently, you know, the problem is that you won't you won't do it tomorrow. I thought about myself and I thought, you know, I, I think that's really true for me. And I think that is mm. what makes a great coach is yeah. to be able to give you that information and then you can take it and run with it and remember it and, you know, try to incorporate it in the future. And I have had right. a couple of coaches where that has been the case. And I know that I have had others where I thought it was great information, but then I, I for whatever reason, it didn't get implanted well enough for me to be able to carry it forward. So, right. um, so that's interesting, um, that, that you haven't done any, and especially since you're clearly so, so good at what you do. So if you ever run a class, let me know. I'll sign up. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. So, uh, so when you, what do you do when you're not narrating? So you said you have a family. What about, uh, what about, uh, outings with your family or hobbies? What else do you do? Well, uh, you know, we, uh, between the family and the work, that's kind of most of my time. Um, I like to play some music. Um, I'm a, a, a decent guitar player. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, and that kind of unwinds me. Uh, and so I have one just sort of hanging on the wall in the living room. And so whenever I get a free minute, I just sort of take it off the wall and just sort of noodle around on the, on the fretboard and just kind of play a bit. And I just find it very relaxing. That's great. What kind um, of music do you play? Oh, I mean, honestly, it's mostly like classic rock kind of mm, thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but... Uh, I've, it's an interesting thing about it is that, and I've been doing this for years and years and years. I've always had a guitar. Um, and, and I'm literally just playing like a few minutes a day at this point, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes total. Mm-hmm. But over the years, I've gotten better and better and better at playing the guitar. And it's, it's a real lesson to me that like you just put in a little bit of work, but you do it consistently you know, and you just, you just, you will get, you will improve. You will get better at things. That's fantastic. You know, I know it's kind of crazy. It's like now I can just kind of, you know, play little riffs and little basic solos. And, you know, I can even just like make things up and I can just, you know, play and just sort of music. Like, there's no way I could have done that a few years ago. There's no way I, w- I still would have been like looking down at my hands to make sure I was like, putting the fingers on the right, in the right places. Well, that totally um, gives me hope because I'm actually yeah. teaching myself to play the banjo. And, oh, nice. And the, the time that I do it is at night while I'm watching The Sopranos because I don't have to look at the screen. I already know what's going on and I can <laughs> actually focus on the banjo. Right. Right. <laughs> so that gives me hope. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, the guitar is a big part of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I told you at the, when we first got on the line that, like, I just moved uh, a year and a half ago out of the city. And so... I'm also kind of adjusting to life in a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of interesting. We have, there are all these things that come with a house that I didn't really consider before. And it takes time and I'm, I'm enjoying it. Things like a vegetable garden um, and just tending to, to things outside. And I'm suddenly becoming like more attuned with, with nature and, 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 uh, and the, the, the trees and plants around me and, and wanting to like, you know, tend to them. So I'm enjoying that. And I find it very relaxing. That's great. Um, I love I love the city and I miss the city, but I also enjoy a lot this this time outside it. How old is the house? The house is from 1912. Oh, so uh, it's an old house. So yeah, you're going to have house. lots of projects going forward. Yeah, it's actually in good shape though. <laughs> That's good. Um, and and very briefly, this story about this house, which is interesting, it was built by um, a guy named David Manners, who was a silent movie actor, hmm. and he worked with Bella Lugosi. 
Um, and so I love to imagine that Bella Lugosi would come over, you know, like they would sit by the fire and have cocktails. Or That's something. awesome. Um, I don't know if that actually happened. That sounds like something um, you should write about. Well, then years later, it gets better. Um, Jimmy Stewart's sister lived in this house. Um, and so, and we have it on, on good evidence from the neighbors who have been longtime residents that Stewart himself visited. So now I, now I have to imagine that Bella Lugosi, Lugosi is sitting in one corner and Jimmy Stewart is sitting in the other. <laughs> and so, and that's, that's my living room. You that know? is fantastic. Yeah. So it's a house with a lot of acting history. Yeah. No kidding. That, that, I mean, you know, when you get to writing that great American novel seems to me that you, there it you is. got some, you got some, some stuff to work with there. So, uh, so even though you're not going to go into coaching right away, yeah. how about a few words of wisdom for, uh, aspiring narrators out there? What I do tell people when they ask, and for what it's worth, um, is it's some advice that um, I got very early in my career when I was starting to think about being on stage. Um, and a teacher said, when in doubt, say the words. Like, just keep it very simple, mm -hmm. right? If you're not sure what to do, say the words, because the playwright has done a lot of work in <laughs> putting together this play. And so say the words and the audience will follow along, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't necessarily have to do that much. And I thought that was sound advice. Um, and so I, I, I say that to people as well. It's like when in doubt with audiobooks, just say the words. You know, the writer has written them carefully, we hope, um, and your job is to then carry them forward and put a voice to them. And oftentimes, you don't have to do much more than say the words, especially if it's well-written. Mm -hmm. The words will carry you along. You know, it's a good book. Like Narrating a good book is like floating downstream. You really don't have to do much. It just takes you, right? Because mm -hmm. they've done a lot of the heavy lifting, let's, let's be honest. Um, and so I say to people, just just don't feel like you have to do too much. Just say the words. And the, the inverse of that is that if it's a crappy book, that will also come forward and that's not your fault. You know, <laughs> it really isn't like there's only so much you can do right. to save a bad book. Right. And so I say to people, just, just, just say the words. That's great. I love that. It, it sounds like good advice for, uh, audiobook narration as well as, uh, acting in general. Yeah. People, people overact way too much. You know, I see it in shows and films and, you know, especially now that we're in this sort of golden age of television when there's such good writing. I mean, mm -hmm. my God, these, these guys are so good. Say the words, you know, they've, they've written the stories and they've created the characters and you don't have to, you know, contort yourself so much. Just say the words. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Yeah. That's great. So you mentioned APAC. Um, are, have you been to many APACs? I have been to a couple. I will be at this one. I, I believe I'm speaking on a panel. Oh, great. Um, yeah, um, something for Harper Audio. Um, I have been to, uh, uh, yeah, two or three. Uh, I find them valuable, um, certainly as a networking uh, experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and also there is, a lot of, there is a lot of information there that certainly young um, or aspiring uh, narrators uh, can learn a lot. Um, I, I certainly learned a lot the first couple of times I went and I met a lot of people, mm -hmm. which was great. Um, it can be a bit overwhelming, you know, it's, it's a long, long haul, but it's yeah, worth it. 
Absolutely. The the first one that I went to, it was just like, oh, what do I do? Who do I talk yeah. to? And right. I, I see posts about that online frequently. Uh, I'm going to go to APAC this year for the first time. What should I do? And it's like, well, you know, there's not really a good way to answer that. Just show up, yeah. be a real person, meet people, yeah. don't, sure. don't expect anything and learn a few things and, you know, it'll be a good experience. And that's what happened to me, the, the first one that I went to a couple of years ago. And, and in um, previous years, it was timed with the Audis, so it was more of a kind of whole weekend, three-day kind of, you know, blowout. Yeah, it um, was. That was that was a very um, – I, I don't blame the organization yeah. for making the choice to, to move to it. To move it, but, yeah. it was, but it was – I know that it was a difficult choice for them. I mean, Michelle Cobb talked about it quite a bit, and it was a yeah. difficult choice. I was really bummed because last year I helped out with um, PJ and um, – mm-hmm. Uh, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. Um, oh yeah, I know uh, I'm blanking his, on her name as well. His partner on the on the carpet. Um, yeah. Uh, I wish I was online right now. I could uh, yeah. I could ask somebody and they'd tell me in a second. Um, anyway, I uh, I helped out with them and I thought, you know, this looks really cool. I'm going to go next year. And then, you know, a few months yeah, later, I get the notice yeah. that they moved it. And I'm like, I can't afford to go to New York a second time. <laughs> right. And they may move it back. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I know that it's it was. It's not set in stone. It's, yeah. it's not. They they made the choice for a number of reasons. And I, I understood the reasons. And uh, I was just, uh, I was bummed because that was part of my plan for this year. So instead, yeah. I'll just go to go to APAC and, and leave it at that. Well, I will see you there. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're going to be there, and I will yeah. uh, look for the panel that uh, that you're going to be on. Yeah. So, Eduardo, where can people find you online if they want to uh, look you up, send you a note? Oh, the usual, the usual haunts, uh, you know, that the ye old Twitter and, and Facebook. Um, you know, I think Facebook, it's just Eduardo Ballerini is my uh, page. Okay. Uh, and uh, Twitter, it's uh, Edo Ballerini, E-D-O Ballerini. My whole name is too long; it wouldn't fit, so I had to, I had to shorten it. Um, That's great. So, um, and I do, um, you know, people do write to me. Um, they can also. I have an email address, which is info at eduardoballerini.com. Oh, that's um, your website. Yeah, um, okay. and it's. I'll spell it for people if they're if they're still paying attention. Uh, it's e d o a r d o b a l l e r i n i dot com. Uh, info at eduardoballerini.com. And people do write me and I do write back. Um, you know, it's not like I'm flooded with so many emails that I can't possibly <laughs> respond. Well, you might um, be now. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, um, but, uh, I do like to, I do like to correspond with people. Um, I do like to, you know, hear what they're, what they have to say. And it can be everything from somebody wanting to just say they listen to something and want to ask about it or, you know, people interested in the business and I try to offer whatever advice I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I find it, I find it important that we all, we all communicate with each other. That's great. I, I love to hear that. Um, I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are, you know, starting out in the recent past. And, um, one of the things that I love about the audiobook community is the community. It's, um, yeah, it's great. People who are, uh, I mean, you just won a big award. You've won awards in the past. You've been doing this for 10 years and you're totally willing to talk to people. I, I hear things like that and I just love it. I think that it is, um, one of the best industry. It's, I'm sure the best industry I've ever worked in and, uh, for, for that aspect. And, uh, and I love hearing that, uh, other people find the same thing. Yeah. It's a wonderful community. I have to say it's another thing, another reason that I like working in it so much. Um, it's, it's a very kind, it's a very supportive, it's a very gentle, uh, it's, uh, and nurturing. You can reach out to people. 
um, and they will help you. Mm. Um, and I hope it maintains that. And I say that because it is growing, mm, you know, yeah. it is growing very quickly um, and it really is. And so suddenly there are a whole lot of people, um, that are kind of new to it and they might be coming at it from a more kind of businessy aspect. And uh, at its core though, I think it, I think it will retain that. Yeah. I, I hope so as well. Um, and, and I know that that can happen, you know, businesses, um, when they grow like that, growing pains, um, things can happen, yeah. uh, bad motives, et cetera. But, right. uh, so far I haven't seen it and I certainly hope it stays that way. Yeah. So, well, this is great. Eduardo, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I hope the cider was good. The cider was delicious. I'm at the bottom of my glass. We timed this perfectly. Perfect. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, also getting I, close to the bottom of mine. And I thank you uh, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Eduardo Ballerini for coming in tonight. I really enjoyed hearing about how his love of language and his accidental foray into acting have come together in a stellar audiobook career. And I hope you did too. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated, as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!